0: Welcome to the Sacred Body Podcast, where we investigate trauma resolution, healing, sex, and intimacy, and motherhood, all through the lens of the sacred and wise nature of the body. This season, we're focusing a little bit more on inherited trauma and how our inherited history has impacted our individual paths to wholeness. So if you're here, you're on a journey, and I welcome you every part of you to the conversation welcome everybody to the sacred body podcast I have the pleasure of being joined by Rachel Maddox today. And Rachel is a trauma resolution educator, coach, and guide who's helped hundreds of humans move from sexual complex or developmental trauma into pleasure, power, and trust-filled relationships. Rachel has authored multiple books, including Secret Bad Girl, a sexual trauma memoir and resolution guide, and the upcoming book Rebloom, a soulful system for post-traumatic growth in sex, love, and society. Rachel uses stories and metaphor to weave together healing methods that are accessible, safe, fun, and effective. And there's a lot more to this bio, but the thing I want to be sure to name, in case you don't, is for fun, Rachel writes songs on her ukulele, swims naked as often as possible, and lays quietly under trees. <laughs>
1: <Sure>. <laughs> and that
0: brings me into a really cozy place inside myself. So <laughs> thank you for including that in your bio and reminding me about uh, that real commitment of pleasure.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally.
0: So thank you for being here, Rachel. And I would love for you to introduce yourself um as you are today to mm-hmm. our
1: listeners yeah. yeah
0: thank you for that
1: <sighs> you know it's it's fun to hear a bio and to think huh what's different what's still true and i think a lot of my professional identity those those pieces still stand but i'm really shifting um into a bit more of a visionary and a bit more of a an architect of sorts and um, i'm really excited about things coming down the pike that are related to wealth redistribution reforestation like fundraising and moving money in places where it's needed um and just so much about like so much that matters to me right now is about humanity being connected to my humanity, making it accessible for us to stay connected to our humanity or to remember our humanity. So that's really the center of everything I'm doing.
0: Mm, Yeah, I was really moved by a recent social media post about just that, about using your work um, and the platform that you've established to generate more of a conversation around just this redistribution of wealth, planting trees. And uh, I'm really curious what is in motion for that. Um, And and perhaps like, is there, because to me it, it seems like a very organic Progression of like trauma resolution work and embodiment, and that recognition of the depth of value of being connected to body and earth as body, too. So, I'd just love to hear, in your words, what that progression has been like.
1: Yeah, it is such an organic progression to sort of, you know, in my life experience, it was like born with this feeling that something's just not right here. Right? Something's a little off in our culture. Why are we in these nuclear households in these suburban boxes? I, I grew up in suburbia. Like, why don't people have guard, like just feeling the displacement, the isolation, the disconnection, feeling like something's slightly off here. And, you know, of course, having a home that wasn't perfect per usual. Right? Nobody's got a perfect childhood. I did not. And I think these experiences of isolation, alienation, displacement, this feeling of something's just not right here, whether it's in our families of origin or it's in relationship to the culture we're a part of, that leads us um, down funny roads and funny paths. And of course, it leads everyone down funny paths whatever your gender, your sexuality, your age, your ability, your levels of privilege, we're all in the same soil. And we're all having hyper and hypo responses to our collective trauma spell, is what I like to call it. Mm -hmm. Collective trauma spells of capitalism, of colonization, of racism, of systemic oppression. Those affect our families. Those affect the way that we grow up inside of our homes. So it's all inextricable. Right. And, you know, they, those things produce rape culture, which I was a victim of rape culture. So many of us have been. And so for me, you know, most of my twenties, all of my twenties were really about how do I grapple with the first 20 years of my life and the things that happened, the feelings of isolation, displacement, um, the experiences of sexual violence, the experiences of feeling like lost from a place I never went to, lost from a place I'd never stepped foot on, lost from a a we that I'd never even experienced. How do I reckon with those feelings? And a lot of my early 20s were how do I find my sense of self? How do I find my sense of What I need, what my boundaries are, um, what my true identity is, what I believe in, how do I come into these sort of core individual powers Mm
0: -hmm. of
1: worthiness and receptivity, of sovereignty and healthy boundaries and of whole self-expression and true identity, which are the first three blueprints in Rebloom, by the way. Um, Because there's seven archetypes, they each have blueprints and imprints, uh, natural blueprints of health, traumatic imprints. So I spent a lot of the, my early and really my most of my 20s in those questions of how do I receive what I need? How do I grow healthy boundaries to protect what I need? And how do I let my true self, how do I discover who she is and let her emerge uh, powerfully? And that was a lot of process around I had a wonderful phenomenal mentor um, but it was a lot around healing trauma Mm -hmm. a lot around coming back into my body I had chronic pain I had chronic illness I had cancer I had more sexual violence I had a very safe protected relationship and then had to leave that because I was like wait a second who am I right do I get to exist or do I just have to trade off my safety for my soul no so I was like can't do that gotta gotta find myself right so, you know, late 20s, Saturn return, cancer, healing. Finally, was like, all right, I have this sexual trauma thing, right? Pre-Me Too. Like, what is sexual trauma? and What do you do if you have it? Where do you go? And by the grace of God, I met a woman named Bridget Vixens, who I was living in Maryland at the time, which is where my family's from. And she is a phenomenal phenomenal somatic practitioner. She's a teacher. She has a training program for trauma resolution called alchemical alignment. So I worked with her for probably over 40 sessions in person with touch-based trauma resolution. Um, And I also took her training one and a half times because I was like, I'm going to stay here longer in this learning container. And I had this epiphany of like, oh, wait a second the way our bodies work, our physiology affects our capacity to make the changes that we want to make to heal how we want to heal. But nobody I know is working with the body.
0: Mm -hmm. You
1: know, you might go get a massage, but that's not working with somatics. That's not aligning with the incomplete instincts and impulses of your body. So I spent many years really in that kind of alchemical cauldron of, resolving and completing, like thawing deep freezes, resolving shame, um, repairing boundary violations all through the body. And then of course, integra- integrating intellectually. And just as that process really got under my feet, I thought said, you know, I I wanna teach people about this. I wanna show people what's possible. And I wrote my first book, Secret Bad Girl, and it was a sexual trauma memoir and resolution guide. Um, and I started Doing groups and I started working with people. And, you know, a lot of my clients were coaches or whatever, and they'd be like, Will you please teach us? And I'd be like, You know, no, <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not a joke. Like, definitely not. Um, but, you know, after years of people like asking me, and I was like, All right, I'll try a beta. So, about two years ago, I put a beta program together teaching coaches how to work with trauma, worked with them each individually. And then last year, I started the Rebloom coach training. Mm -hmm. which is both a somatic, soulful, and like social political perspective on post-traumatic growth. And um, so I've been doing that now, you know, I've been in the, in the land of teaching and working with coaches for about two years, and we're going into our third year there. But as I do this more and more, um, more of my, my sage, the, the fourth archetype. And my sacred gardener, the seventh, more of these mm-hmm. really co-creative archetypes have come alive in me. And I've worked with so many people and I'm like, there's there's only so far we can go with our individual healing. And watching our collective fall apart is also destroying us, right? And so how can we, not as individual saviors, but as wide networks of togetherness start to repair the soil that we were born into that we were born into wondering something's wrong here Uh Uh have we grown up enough have we healed enough have we increased our capacity enough to have the resources tools interpersonal skills confidence trust love For those things to be online in our systems enough to be able to collaborate, to do our part in this great turning. And I think the answer is yes. So that's what matters to me most right now.
0: That's beautiful. I I resonate with something you hinted at, which is like the limitation of our personal healing and sort of the self-centeredness of healing work and being uh, guided hopefully by a a coach or mentor or you know sometimes it's a family member to expand out sometimes beyond that really deep internal process because there's, there's a time and place for that obviously and I do think that there's a tremendous value in having also a shared vocabulary like for us to collectively understand what trauma is and how it relates to the body and also the sort of underground work that just being part of a collective is yeah that it doesn't you know and in trauma work of course there's that titration piece you don't have to like go in and beat it over the head and like rehash and relive and re-traumatize and how much unbelievable maturation i think there is in this wave of trauma resolution work that you are spearheading of like now we need to tend to the soil like that next level of earth that deeper layer and you know obviously you call your program Rebloom which is just so gorgeous yeah. so i'd love to talk a little bit more about the developmental um part of the the process of how we respond to an instinctual sense that something's not right how it often leads to kind of sideways behavior
1: Hmm. yeah well you know just with that phrase of the developmental process of it i think what's tricky is our world needs mature humans like yesterday (laughs) and we can't mature by forcing maturation and so i am where i am because i've taken 13 years to get here of intentional healing that doesn't mean it'll take everyone 13 years things are happening at light speed these days so you know quantum leaps are possible
0: From like, you know, I'm thinking of myself as a little kid, like the 14 year old sitting at the table with all the adults and just like talking like I know it all. And cognitively, I did know a lot, but it's not the same as lived experience and self-examination. and That takes, that does take time. Yeah. Right. So in ReBloom,
1: we have these seven archetypes that follow, um, that follow the life cycle of a regenerative garden. Regenerative meaning it gets healthier in time with time right um so life begets more life versus degenerative which would be deteriorating right um but these archetypes also follow the life cycle of human development and so that's what i was sort of speaking to in the beginning and you know it doesn't matter where you are in your life we all have to start with this place of what do i need to receive in order to be resourced Yeah. And so it is true that our trauma resolution can be self-centered. And in the beginning, it kind of has to be. Because if if not, what ends up happening, sorry, there's a little fly that's here for the party. um, What ends up happening is patterns of overgiving, of self-extraction, right? If you're used to exploitation, which is the second core wound, if you're used to having things taken from you without your consent and you have a hypo boundaries as a result, Well, now you're looking at the world around you and you're saying, I have to give everything I have to the disasters of the world because that's, I have to be the one to save the world. Well, if you have your soul seed intact, what do I need to receive in order to be able to give anything at all? We have to start with receptivity and worthiness. And worthiness is just sort of like a feeling state of being able to receive what we need. So, you know, in terms of some of the things that come out sideways, one of them that's a funny little shadow is burnout, self-extraction, saviorism. And I think probably the people who are listening to this podcast will fall into that camp more than, but then there's also the other camp of, of bypass. No, I've given everything away so much to everyone else. I'm going to have hyper boundaries. I'm not going to give a shit about this or that, or excuse my language. Like it's welcome. Okay, just making sure. I was thinking, oh, she's got a one-year-old. Okay, but, um, (laughs) you know, and so really the goal is to start developmentally coming back into our natural blueprints of health one at a time. And as we do that, you know, the first being able to receive what we need, being able to receive what we need, that sounds so simple, but it's not because it's being able to feel our needs first, being able to then speak for or ask or reach for our needs. All of this is attachment trauma, right? Mm -hmm don't have any needs because having needs was dangerous or having needs got, so we start right there at the beginning, which is quite an intense place to begin. Um, and then being able to receive what comes or being able to wait and trust that it's coming. And so if we don't have that first piece intact, which most of us don't, because we have a culture of neglect, because we've experienced developmental neglect, because we have displacement from village, because nuclear parent, like two parents perhaps, or caregivers in a household are actually not enough for a baby, right? Like, because these things are just our culture, because we, many of us live on colonized land or have experienced colonization or have experienced slavery. Like we have displaced, we have these things that create a ruptured sense of I can have what I need, both for me, but as part of a collective. So, even if we just stay there developmentally, because what happens if I don't, if I override my needs? I'd be, I, that this is where addiction comes in. Mm -hmm. I'll just, I'll just distract the lack of connection that I need being met with alcohol, with pot, with social media, with, you know, online shopping with workaholism so if we can start with your needs matter most it's actually probably the hardest place to start but and it's the place where everyone says well no no no, i don't have the needs this this social issue has the need if you don't have your yourself resourced then you are like as adrian marie brown talks about the fractal nature of things what's the energy with which you're doing something
0: yeah
1: if it's, if it's self-harm to be part of a movement, is it healing?
0: Is it good for anyone? Is there a gift? Yeah, I was just on the phone with a friend talking about social work. I initiated a master's in social work several months ago and completed my first course and left the program. <laughs> and it was, um, it was a fascinating experience that for me really clarified this tendency of mine of like you know i've got to give the most it's got to be the most i've got to be of service and service looks like this and what i realized is that i was learning how to how to function inside dysfunctional systems which is not my work in the world but it took some convincing of that part of myself that like you're never doing enough that putting myself in a position to be burnt out and depleted and not met with care by, you know, my supervisors, my, my coworkers, all of that, my environment Mm -hmm. Uh, that actually I would never be of service if I put myself through that. And it was humbling initially, right. It's that like digging deep. And then it was like, Mm -hmm. so much energy available to me. And this this initial process that you describe seems to me like it would be the um, slowest or like the right. most significant, and then after that, there really is this like poof, poof, just sprouts and shoots of new life coming out.
1: Yeah, it's so true. You know, I always tell people you're going to spend most of your time in soul seed and gatekeeper, and you're going to think. Mm-hmm. I don't wanna be in these beginner archetypes, but it's the foundation, right? Why why are the plants not growing in the soil? Well, the soil needs some help. So we're working with the soil, um, not the collective soil, but the individual soil and as we do that, we become people who can co-create new containers, new communities. You know, that's one of my goals with Rebloom as a company. We're, we're really shifting into a more cooperative model where mm-hmm. there's going to be more teachers and there's going to be more, um, just more ways for, for wealth to circulate. And because it's not just me, right, there's such an individualized model in our culture. It's individualism, competition, winners and losers. I mean... It's a problem, right? Like, which, and we have this false narrative that to work together, you would lose your individuality, which isn't true. In a collective, your unique gifts and contributions have a right place. Your, your community asset can be used. Like your resource can be used in the circle and can actually maybe go further. Like my best friend's a great example she's a music therapist, she's a singer-songwriter, but she's a total introvert, and she's not a business person, and I am incredibly strategic with business, it's my number one strength on the Strength Finder is strategic, (laughs) and and I, you know, part of my strategy is to be a human, right, like, but it's a strategy, (laughs) it's both me, and it's also, like, what I, it's coherent with my values. And I think coherence is my strategy, right? Like the more aligned I am, the more everything opens. Yeah. So anyway, point is, Jodi is like the resident music therapist of our program. And she's queer. She's a lesbian. She's like heading the the lesbian affinity group in Rebloom. And she's also running a lot of the back end of the business because she's actually really great with things that I'm horrible at, like, and doesn't mind doing them and loves to work independently. So like, she has a place. And she also is supported and has and is valued and is significant in a way that she probably wouldn't be able to get those needs met if she were trying to do it by herself. So we need to expand our perspective around what it's what what's possible for us to receive to that view of the thing that we've always longed for but never experienced. If we can include that longing for togetherness, for village, for cooperation, for community in our plans, if we can say, well, I could create that because I need that. And I refuse to deny myself my needs any longer. It's a bumpy road to get there, but it's
0: way more fruitful. Well, and I imagine there's, I mean, I don't imagine, I like feel in my body so much old baggage to sift through like this, you know, if you are a descendant of a colonizer, Mm -hmm. your trauma is, I have to do it alone. I didn't belong there, I had to leave, I'm here now, come hell or high water, I will get my plot of land, I will make this fucking home, I will build it, I will become it, I will go forward no matter what and my children will not have to fight as hard and the perpetuation of that cycle of like, I'm gonna protect everything I have, not recognizing that everything any one of us has comes from a collective effort. Yeah yeah and there's so much damage there there's so much false identification with this sense of like it's mine I did it I deserve this
1: yeah and it's a trauma response right that I I I will 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 is a hyper fight right it's and it's the that's where the origins of really this sort of Hypercapitalism that we have come from. It comes from the trauma of colonization, the trauma of displacement, the trauma of being disconnected from our communities, the trauma of having to fend for ourselves. That's a trauma, yeah.
0: This feels like a, a good place to, to ask the question that I love asking. Where do you come from? Where do your people come from? What is your ethnic background, cultural background, and how has that shaped your own healing work and the work that you offer?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, my family currently lives in Maryland and my mom's side of the family, um, they're Jewish and they came from Poland and Latvia And my mom's side of the family immigrated to Baltimore in like the 20s, right? As there were pogroms happening. And so the pogroms were like burning of Jewish villages. Mm -hmm. Well, the pogroms were the villages, but there was like burning of, of homes and businesses. And, you know, there was a lot of discrimination happening. And so my family left. Um, that side of the family, and I actually don't know when her dad's side of the family got here, but they also immigrated from Latvia to Baltimore, and there were similar things happening in Latvia, but it wasn't as extreme as in Poland. But Europe was not a great place for Jews, so they went everywhere, right? Um, And my dad's side of the family, and I'll talk about the influence or whatever, but my dad's side of the family was Scottish, and they came to the united states to like the north carolina area in the early 1700s and they were scoundrels they had gotten caught stealing horses so they were like peasants and stole some horses and they were given choices like you can be an indentured servant in the united states for 10 years and then freed or we'll kill you or whatever it was you know yeah so they basically they were brought to the us as indentured servants which is true for a lot of um, Scottish people and Irish people and Irish people. Yeah. Um, so that happened. So both, you know, which is wild to think about, right? Cause we have this story in our heads of the colonizers are all evil, but a lot of the, the white colonizers, right? Whiteness got created to become a mechanism of oppressing people who weren't white, but and there was this assimilation that happened of like, okay, we'll assimilate to this culture so that we are no longer in this oppressed position. Now we can be white. Yeah, we can be above where we were. Uh, you know, so there's lots of complications, right? But all this to say, um, you know, for me, having these sort of dual, and then of course there's there's the Holocaust, which extended family members were a part of, but. You know, I, I was raised Jewish and I did not want to be Jewish when I was a kid. I would fight and yell and say, to I'm not Jewish, I'm not Jewish. Because I had this internalized knowing, like, why would I want to belong to Team Loser? Like, if I could just be white. And so even there, that wow. internalized whiteness of like, I could just be this instead of that, instead of the people. Because, you know, you're eight years old and they're showing you Schindler's List and taking to the Holocaust museums. And it's like, these, ugh, I don't want to, I'm half, I'll just be something else. Um, but I've really come to be so grateful for my Jewish lineage, so grateful. I went to Hebrew school. I learned Hebrew. I knew these prayers and these traditions and these rituals that are seasonal, that are earth-based, that are, you know, Shabbat being this weekly rhythm that I participate in, just these incredible, incredible rituals that have been happening for over 5,000 years and to feel really connected to something that has almost like a timeless quality to it is a real anchor for me. I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, and then my dad's side of the family in that lineage, you know, I, I just don't, it's funny now, I don't have as much connection there. I'm curious more about like the indigenous traditions of, like, Celtic people and Scottish people and all that, um, but it's not something I've explored as much of.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I think it's, um, I, I feel some amount of restoration just by us having a conversation of like, what do you know? And what do you participate in? And how is it showing up every day? And even naming like, where are the wounds and where is the disconnect? Um, My, I was adopted at birth and I only know some about my biological mother's lineage. Hmm. And I recognize what, a severe impact not having any connection Mm. my heritage had on my sense of belonging and being adopted as well which is another it's another podcast it's another (laughs) episode Mm. but um it has just felt like such a significant albeit small piece of this ongoing conversation that we start to name it and get curious about like what's there what's not there what is available to me, and what do I even have interest or affinity for? Like that instinct toward these traditions of prayer and a language. And um, I think it's really beautiful. I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, and I just appreciate you
1: sharing as well. And I think like uh, it's such a it's such a big topic. You know, I work with a diversity of people from different lineages, backgrounds, races, cultures, everything. But it's it's fascinating to to talk about colonization and ancestral healing in mixed race and mixed lineage groups because um, there's a lot of pain on both sides. But right now, you and I, as two white women, just speaking about like that pain of you know, there's different reasons why w- the pain exists, but this feeling of like with with slavery, right? A lot of people maybe don't know what country they came from because of slavery, and there's all of the pains of that. Like, where are my people? What can I? Who do I go back to? Which, of course, you know, the huge rupture of slavery that creates that question is also horrible. Um, but with white people too, there's there's just such a significant feeling of having been abandoned by like people who tr- traded off their their lineages
0: yeah totally
1: um and people who are like i just that people the word people use is orphaned mm-hmm. i feel orphaned and then that's where a lot of white people will then appropriate or uh, take on other people's cultures because they have such a deep desire to connect to something old and to belong um And I think that's understandable and can also cause a lot of harm. And so the real healing is to be with that feeling and then to say, like, there's also all these interesting stories I've heard of people who were like, I've always related to this thing, this mystical thing. Like for me, um, I have a spiral on my arm, right, tattooed. I find out that spirals are a major part of Kabbalah the mystical sect of Judaism which I had no idea or I've always had this feeling like like when I connect to like soul I see like this eternal light well there's an eternal flame at the top of um right in the center of like on the bima which is where the Torah is in every synagogue mm. I have a friend who's Celtic and she says I've always had these different connections to these different symbols and then she finally she went to Ireland and did this whole homage to her homeland and found all of the things she's always been like mystically drawn to, we're in her lineage. And so maybe like there's a little bit of hope in that that we actually have a sense. Totally. The thing that speaks to us in these recurring whispers.
0: Totally. I have always been obsessed with words. I started speaking when I was nine months old. I started reading when I was four and I mean, now that I have a one-year-old, I'm like, that's insane. What a creepy child I must have been. (laughs) Obsessed with pregnant bodies, obsessed with birth, women, womanhood. Mm. And a few years ago, I met my biological mother and her lineage was like 100% Irish. And she told me that she was going to name me Bridget, who is a saint in Ireland. And Bridget is the patron saint of midwives and poetry. And it like, it, it floored me mm. and it felt like connection yeah. into that soul place. And that, you know, in yoga, it's like you're, you're seeking clarity from that part of you that is eternal, that is not, that is not altered by the end of this body or or trauma or an unkind word. Um, And to your point, like I'd love to hear your thoughts on well, dissociation and embodiment. And you know, that connection to our soul that is through the body. In my, in my belief, it's through the body. I'd love to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I also feel that way. I feel like the
1: in some ways, I feel like the soul and the nervous system are like very connected as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even today I had a client and I said to her, like there was a lot of dissociate, it was an intake actually. So it was a little bit more intellectual than usual. And I won't reveal any details about this client, but just this general sweeping concept of dissociation. she kept kind of naming the places where dissociation was showing up for her. And it was very clearly connected to, if I feel this true aliveness, it will create a threat from my, for my security. And I think, you know, we, we hear and think and relate to dissociation from this place of like, there's something violating happening to me and I'm dissociating. But, which is definitely a thing that goes on, right? But I also think for those of us who have been disconnected from our soul's aliveness, because there was some kind of rupture at some point that said, your aliveness isn't how you create safety in your environment, right? Actually, we need you to be the one that always bends, or we need you to be the one that disappears, or we need you to be the one that doesn't exist, or we need you to be the one who has no needs. Well, all of those things would equal as I start to feel my aliveness, oh no, this is an emergency. This will create disconnection. This will sever belonging. So let me just not. And then, you know, that just dis- that kind of dissociation—the dissociation from your aliveness, from your life force, from your will to penetrate what you desire, or to hang back from what you don't, or to open and let in what brings you pleasure, or to close to what doesn't. Right? Like your our ability to do that. When we don't have that, when we don't have connection to our authentic aliveness, that's where not only dissociation, but chronic pain, Mm -hmm. chronic illness, depression, those things are rooted in. It's not safe to be alive, Mm -hmm. but the body still wants to be alive. So the body's still sending a signal of pain. The, The body's still sending a signal of something's not right. And when we have these sort of pervasive pain experiences or illness experiences usually instead of what are you afraid of like in terms of bad happening to you what's the aliveness in you that you're denying what's the aliveness in you that is gonna eat you from the inside out if you don't wake it up
0: Mm. and let it out wow i've never i i love your language around um or this frame for chronic pain that is so prevalent. And a little a little bit of a segue, because I know it's part of your personal story, but something that I definitely want to touch on is your work with sexuality and not only sexual trauma resolution, but sexual expression and pleasure and receptivity to that aliveness. Like, yeah the, the being in a body that is sexual by nature in that, you know, my, my own personal definition of sexuality is the curious, hungry part of ourselves. It's like, I want to know, like, what's, Mm -hmm. what's that? And that beautiful duality of opening to what pleases us and the capacity to close to what doesn't. Um, I'd love to hear this, your connection between a free-flowing sexuality, which is also the capacity to say no, and the development of self-trust and the power of self-trust. Yeah. Well,
1: the more I trust myself to be able to feel the cues of my body and then honor them with body language, communication, all of it, the more places I can go. So I like to kind of think of it of like, who's running the show of your sex life? Is it a scared kid who doesn't have a sense of boundaries, who doesn't have a sense of sovereignty, a sense of self, a sense of what you're allowed to do or not allowed to do? Mm -hmm. Is it maybe a a safe kid that's in some safe nurturing environment that's saying, yeah, you can try this or no, you can't try that or whatever. usually in our culture, a lot of people have a kid running their sex lives, which is not the safest person to be running a sex life with adult bodies, right? So um, how can the adult be in charge of the sex life? And I think the thing is, you know, our adult self would be able to say to a kid, Oh, that cue in your that that feeling in your stomach of uneasiness and that clenching up, that might mean you're not ready for that. Mm. Whereas the kid who's looking to other peers and being influenced what they're saying, oh, maybe I should just override this feeling, might override the feeling and then end up in an experience that feels violating and then feel ashamed that they feel violated while well, I should have felt okay. Mm. Versus the adult, you know, in developmental Uh, psychology, um, in an attachment psychology, the child needs to look to the adult to affirm um, cues, right? Physiological cues with interpretation. That is something that children rely on adults to help them with. And so if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, but (laughs) my adult doesn't know how to do it right like that's why working with somebody who has those capacities to help you affirm this physiological sensation could probably it is likely a cue for this right it might be a cue that we need to take a little more time and not push might be a cue that you want to back up a little bit might be a cue that you want to go in another direction might be a cue that you're you're wanting something Mm -hmm. to be able to get mirrored and affirmed um it can heal the neuroplastic like it can the the neurotransmitters that say this sensation means this thing means this decision should be made so self trust is rooted in that it's rooted in embodied consent embodied consent requires co-regulation and affirmation of cues with interpretation Okay. So let's say you've got that down, right? Like, okay, sure. I got that. It's right? like, I have that. I can do that. I'm <laughs> completely like fluent in that, which is amazing. And I didn't used to be. Right. So if, and this is where it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation a little bit, like if you don't have that sense of self-trust and um, consent with your own body, and you're trying to like lead the world or heal something out there, like Chances are you're going to do it in a way that violates your own consent. So we can use pleasure as um, a learning playground for how to be a better leader. We can use our sex lives. You know, for a while there, I was really having this dual experience of my my sex life influencing my business and my business life influencing my sex, because in business, I was learning how to be a boss more. I was learning how to direct things and how to make decisions and how to like trust this is what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And I was like, can I bring this boss into the bedroom? And it was amazing. It super helped me like, wait, if I can tell other people what to do outside of the bedroom, like, let me try that here in the bedroom. Of course, there's all these gender roles that tell us what you can and can't do, blah, blah, blah. But screw that your pleasure is more important than your gender role. But anyway, what's possible. I mean, like just to pull back the curtain, my life is full of such a sense of anything is possible around my sexuality.
0: Mm.
1: I have sex and love together, which is a big thing that's hard for people, right? My boyfriend, I fucking love the shit out of him. And there's so much pleasure at the same time. There's safety, there's kink, there's turn on. I'm not monogamous. There's possibilities for, um, you know, group, sex. I've had lots of group sex and I've loved it, you know, and all of those things like group sex or kink or BDSM or power play would have been completely inaccessible to me if I didn't have embodied consent, if I didn't know how to trust my yeses and nos
0: and align to them. And what is the connection between that growth within yourself and the, I mean, would you equate it to the soul seeding process? Sort of what was the origin of that development of your own embodied trust? Yeah. I mean, for me, it started with, I don't matter. Mm -hmm. I don't matter. This person
1: matters. What this person thinks about me matters. (laughs) How that person's feeling and experiencing. It was sexualization, not sexuality. I am a product for their consumption, which is our culture, right? Versus I am a sexual being and we are relating and we get to negotiate about how to make this a win-win. So first it had to be like, well, I matter enough to want to feel physically and emotionally safe. That was the beginning. What would it look like to be physically and emotionally safe in bed? under the sheets with with a partner. And that seems again, so simple, so basic. But let me tell you, people will be like, I don't even know what the options are. The options are you can want to feel cared about, understood, connected to emotionally, spiritually, energetically, attuned to. You can wanna have safer sex conversations about STDs and STIs and condoms and um, birth control You can wanna have conversations about who else are you seeing? Are you seeing other people? You can wanna have a sense of what is going on in the relationship to feel like you can open sexually. You can want before care. You can want a lot of foreplay. Um, And of course, penetration is not the only kind of sex. So you can want, you you can just want so many different things, right? What -hmm. would make you feel physically and emotionally safe? You can wanna know that the day after you have sex with somebody, they're gonna be there. You can want to know, you can want to practice saying no with each other Mm -hmm. and feel your no respected. These are all possibilities. So I had to start there with like, I matter enough that my physical and emotional safety can be the center of this experience. And so can theirs. And then from there, there was a lot of awkward experimenting Stumbling, fumbling, getting like about 70% of what I needed, but that 30% felt impossible. And going through all kinds of processes of like, how really ultimately being in the territory of how much am I willing to matter to myself? Mm. And just little by little, letting myself matter more, letting my, my full aliveness matter more and more and more and more until the person who I was dating previous to my current boyfriend I love him he's still one of my deepest beloveds on this planet we are heartmates like I love him for all of time but we did not have it going on sexually yeah and I could have easily stayed there but it would have killed my aliveness Because I knew, and he was much more monogamous than me, so it was just really not any option. It's like either stay here because I'm afraid that I won't be met in my aliveness, or trust that aliveness always attracts more aliveness and leap into that and like speak more about what brings me alive even though I'm scared. And then immediately met by, by someone who could meet me a lot more, so
0: like the triumph over the guilt or shame of being alive and having (laughs) pleasure that happens so early and in often such shock experiences that it just gets like you know blasted onto the blueprint of like it's not okay to feel this much yeah and not having the capacity to like discover the nuance of what happened and what was actually the punishment or the problem or differentiate mom's anger, my joy. Right. Uh, you speak to that beautifully. And I'm so, I'm so grateful to be getting to know you. I'm so honored to have this little peek into the work that you are offering the world and the dramatic shift that you are creating. Um, it's very inspiring and I, I'm just happy to be a little bit closer to you. Um, yeah, this has been delightful. To so be far. in the field. Thank you so much, Rachel, for your time. And please tell people what is on deck, available, where they can find you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for this really rich conversation. It was short, but like we went there to all the places. Um, I, well. Depending on how soon this comes out, we've got the Reboom Coach training, which starts in January, late January 2021. We still have some space available. So if you're a coach, an experienced coach, therapist, practitioner, um, who's interested in everything we've been talking about here, (laughs) right? It's not just about trauma resolution. It's about Mm -hmm. post-traumatic growth in sex, love, and society, right? Um, So there's some space available there. The book is coming out soon enough. And um, there's gonna, we're going to do this big fundraiser also this winter that's going to be really cool. Um, so I would just hop on over to my Instagram account or get on my email list. I keep those things very human.
0: Um, and I'd love to see you in either place. I'll make sure those links are right under the show notes. And thank you again for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today if you like this episode please leave a comment please share through all your channels and you also have the opportunity to make a donation to ensure that these amazing conversations continue with ease i appreciate you being here i'm curious to hear how this conversation has impacted you and i hope that you'll join us again